Hello, and welcome back to Lower Decks, a Star Trek podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Glenn McDorman, and I haven't shaved since our last episode, 10 years ago. <laughs> All right, Bones. Yeah, that beard that beard is pretty epic. I'm a little... They never really explain having to shave it. I assume it's because he needs to be like regulation. Yeah, I'm just sad we missed that scene, really. I've also watched the director's cut of this film, and that did not make it into the director's cut. Um, <laughs> and I'm Valerie Hoagland, and instead of introducing myself, I'm just going to pause for five minutes uh, and make some laser sounds, <laughs> and you can enjoy that. Yeah, we can all we can all admire you while uh, we listen to some Jerry Goldsmith. I, I'll just put on some Jerry Goldsmith here in the production phase, and we can just <laughs> think about Valerie. <laughs> exactly, and you won't be bored or confused at all. <laughs> Well, if uh, if you cannot tell, <laughs> we are doing Star Trek The Motion Picture today. This is the first of the Star Trek movies, and this came out in 1979. It was written by Harold Livingston from a story by Alan Dean Foster and directed by Robert Wise. So this is going to be an atypical episode for us. We're not going to do a, a scene by scene through this movie. We're just going to do a discussion of a few of the major themes that we've picked out. So we will not be talking about uh, the uniforms or the, the mustaches or the 45 minute Jerry Goldsmith music video, though we've talked about two thirds of those things already, basically. But uh, I do hope that someday we'll actually do the Star Trek films the same way that we do Star Trek episodes. We'll have more on that coming up in uh, a few episodes, maybe. A month or two, we'll say something about that. But we should say that the reason we are here, the reason also we are back a bit early for this one, is that one of our Patreon supporters commissioned this episode, and and this was the brief to to not do the scene by scene, but to just dig into uh, a few themes. One of which was was given to us by the the person who commissioned the episode. And I want to say too, we we love getting these commission episodes. I mean, this is just a really fun thing to do. It's really awesome to have listeners invite us to join them in in their love for a particular story or episode or novel or, you know, in this case, a movie. So we want to say a huge thank you to the, the listener who commissioned this episode. We really appreciate that support. We also, of course, love the impetus to do something that otherwise we might not have done. And Glenn, I think, you know, you saying we won't talk about the uniforms, like speak for yourself. <laughs> I'm definitely <laughs> going to find a way to talk about the uniforms. And I have I have placed my belt in a very strange location on my outfit today just to celebrate um, the fashion risks that they were really taking in this in this movie. Um, but yes, a huge thank you to the Patreon supporter that commissioned this episode to our listeners and to our Patreon supporters more broadly. We really love getting these requests. They're super fun. And I'm, you know, as I was watching, I really thought to myself, if we were doing a scene by scene, normally we take like a 30 minute to 45 minute episode and we talk for two hours. <laughs> this is like a two and a half hour movie. It's like two hours and 10 or something, but it's like a really long movie. And I was like, our coverage is going to be like 20 minutes. Like there's because like nothing happens in this movie if we did a scene by scene. <laughs> Right. That is the thing that I, I, I discovered, I mean, I discovered, but really fully realized in preparing for this episode. You know, my 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 normal routine for doing a Lower Decks episode is that I watch the episode or, you know, in this case, the movie or whatever it is we're going to talk about. Ideally, almost always, all but one time ever, I watched that with, with my wife, Elizabeth. That's just kind of an enjoyable experience, just, you know, on the couch, watching it just to watch it. And then I will watch it at least one more time. That's a, a sort of note-taking time where I'm 
outlining the episode, you know, hitting this, getting the story beats, thinking about, you know, discussion questions we might ask and so on. That's where I, you know, watch on the computer and watch with subtitles and pause all the time. But because we weren't doing a scene by scene here, I really found how much I was able to skip through on my second watch because it really is a lot of Jerry Goldsmith music video. And I don't say that critically because Jerry Goldsmith is actually one of my favorite composers, not just one of my favorite film composers, but one of my favorite composers of all time. I think everyone thinks the Star Trek, the motion picture score is an absolute masterpiece of film scores. So I don't mind that, but it was interesting to see just how long those scenes really are that uh, in a, on a tight schedule, I decided just to skip through them, to scrub through them, to get to the the dialogue so that I could be thinking about what we're going to be doing in this episode since we're really just doing the story and not so much all these other you know parts, all these other features of the, the film as a visual and audio storytelling mechanism. Yeah, it really feels like they just took like just the A plot, you know, from an episode of TOS. And we're like, how do we make this two hours and 10 minutes long? <laughs> mm. <laughs> lots of lots of scenes where nothing happens. Um, and we get to see things in space and listen to music. It, it just really feels like they stretched something out really thin. Yeah, it really does feel that way. And I think if we if we do get to go through this movie and do a scene by scene someday. I would actually like to do a lot more reading about the making of this film. And there are at least two books that I know of that detail that and what uh, a problem it was, how chaotic it was and how many of these decisions were made just accidentally. And as as afterthoughts and things were just uh, the creative people working on the movie got boxed into some of these choices through strange circumstances. I mean, things like they started doing filming uh, before they even had a complete script and so on. Things that I think you can really see, especially if you're going through it slowly, thinking about it scene by scene, seeing how it's constructed. And you know, with my writer's hat, um, that's something I would be super interested in, in doing and deconstructing it. But I think that is something also that fans say about this movie is that it's a strange bridge between the movie universe, the original series movie universe of Star Trek's two through generations, I guess, of Star Trek's two through six, and then also generations where we've got this same you know 19th century British Navy looking uniform. It has the same visual style to it, where this has a different visual style. So it's kind of an aberration there. And also just in terms of the story it's telling feels a lot more like a slightly extended episode and not quite like a film story. And it's just like, you know, I try to think, and of course, um, always fail because it is impossible. But I try to have like what uh, in in my historian scholarship days would have been called the period eye, right? Like I try to think about how this would have been seen at the moment of release by the people who were seeing it in that moment of time, right? Like have an eye to to having existed in that in that period. And, you know, obviously, there's so much there I can never know. But I, when I watch these things, instead of my impulse to sometimes be critical, um, I try to be like, okay, how cool must it have been? Like, maybe they wouldn't have had like a 10 minute shuttle docking scene if it wasn't like showing off something really cool about effects that could happen, right? Or really immersing you in space, or if this was the pacing that that maybe was enjoyable at this time. Although I think that the pacing of this film is almost slower than the pacing of a TOS episode, which is saying something, especially because we have jumped like 15 years into the future where things should have gotten faster paced. 
But one thing that really strikes me, you know, if you if you grew up watching Trek, if you were a Trek fan of the original series, like in that moment in time, this movie comes out must have been pretty exciting. And you haven't seen these characters in, you know, 15 or so years. And it there's no like they do it a little bit, but there's very little like what happened to them and what have they been up to since? Like, it's very, very brief. And even like, you know, the last episode of TOS, it's not like other finales in the Trek universe where we get a little bit of a sense of like what's going to happen next and what's going on with these characters and there's some closure, right? It's just like an episode of TOS and then there weren't any more and now there's this movie. Right. We don't get a, an actual finale to TOS. It's just, yep, yeah, here's turn about Intruder and then yeah, there's, there isn't any Star Trek next week and, uh, you know, thanks for thanks for watching. I also think there is, you know, so certainly there's that level of excitement that a, a person, a fan, a Star Trek fan would have had in 1979. Also in 1979, you have to go see this in a movie theater, in, in movie theaters that are with screens that are double the size of our standard movie theater screens today and with these amazing sound systems as well. And so I think the experience of the Jerry Goldsmith music video would have been a lot more awesome in a massive theater with those giant screens sitting in the dark with other fans who have all been yearning for Star Trek to return for a decade. That's a totally different experience than just watching it, you know, in our living rooms with, uh, you know, like our cell phones to distract us and so on. Not to mention Shatner looks great. Nichelle Nichols looks amazing. George Takei is really in his prime. He looks fantastic as well. He's been working out. He's been working yeah, out. <laughs> like they gave him the short sleeves for a reason. Um, and same with Nichelle Nichols, I think as well. So, um, you know, there were a lot of, a lot of, I just like the joy of getting to see these characters again, you know, must have been huge. So uh, let me actually ask you, Valerie, before we get into doing the thing we're really here to do, which is talk about the themes. Have you ever seen this movie in the theater at all? No, gosh, that would have been cool. I mean, I don't think that I would have had the opportunity aside from like, you know, when I was in college in Seattle, there was a movie theater that showed, you know, um, old films, um, you know, things that hadn't come out that week um, is what I mean by old films yeah. um, and like midnight showings. And maybe it would have cropped up in that scenario. But uh, otherwise, I'm not sure I would have had the opportunity to the way that, for example, you know, I did see the first three Star Wars films, four, five, and six, in theaters when um, when I was young because they were remastered and put out, um, and you could go you could go do that. But I don't think that was the case with Trek, and I also you know haven't been a Trek fan that long, right? It's been maybe ten years of my life, maybe less. Right. So just not a lot of opportunity there. But I've, I've never seen it in theaters either. The you know, I, I guess from time to time, I do say that I have seen some of the uh, some of the TOS movies in theaters when I was a when I was a kid. And I guess I was, you know, I was one when this movie came out, I, I guess. But but I've never seen it in the theater either. The the only one of the Trek movies that, uh, you know, came out when I was too young to go see movies that I have been able to see in a theater since is The Wrath of Khan. And I will say that was a really amazing experience, not because seeing it on the big screen versus my TV was really all that significant, but seeing it with anonymous, you know, you know, strangers who are also Trek fans and people are dressed up and clapping and cheering and shouting some of the favorite lines and so on was an awesome experience. But I would really love to see the motion picture in a theater, you know, you know, these theaters that in cities that do, you know, these midnight showings and so on. And I used to live down the street from a theater that did that in Denver, which is how I saw 
uh, Wrath of Khan that way. It just used to be a part of my my weekend thing was to always make sure I knew what was playing at midnight at the Esquire on Saturday. Uh, saw Raiders of the Lost Ark there and uh, lots of other movies that way, which was super awesome. But this just, I don't ever see this happening anywhere. I think this doesn't you know, I think I think that from a theater's perspective, if they're going to put on a Star Trek film, a classic Star Trek film, this is just not going to be it because it's, I think, got uh, such a mixed reputation in the fandom. Yeah, I mean, fair. Look, what we're going to have to do is we're going to have to get that bed and breakfast and we're also going to have to purchase <laughs> a theater. And- oh, man take on this task ourselves to be honest like i would go to my movie theater all the time <laughs> like that yeah. sounds great I, I mean i don't think we need a big theater i think we actually just need like a barn you know i think we'd just make a drive-in or an outdoor theater you know that would with an amphitheater i think just do that man okay i had let this okay. dream go but i'm i'm back on it i'm back on it <laughs> i mean we could not only serve trek themed cocktails at this at this barn <laughs> or drive through <laughs> or, or drive in sorry drive in or whatever but um I am really excited about the possibility of developing Trek-themed snacks. All right. Well, let's uh, let's actually get into talking about some of these themes. So, you know, we just said we weren't going to talk about any of these things. We just did for, I don't know, 15 minutes or something like that, because that's, uh, that's how we do things here. But we are not going to do a scene by scene for sure. But I do actually just want to start with a small, very tiny summary of the film, just to orient people who maybe haven't seen it in a while. And so really, I'll just say that, hey, if you didn't, in case you don't remember, this is the one with V'ger. It's the one where the interstellar NASA probe Voyager 6 comes back to Earth to share its data. And it turns out that it has achieved consciousness over the last three centuries, and it wants to meet its creator. Also, it doesn't realize that not all life forms in the universe are machines, and uh, that causes some death and destruction, and Earth is in peril, and Kirk has to save the day. That's uh, more or less the synopsis of Star Trek The Motion Picture. But let's let's start there. Let's start with Kirk and Kirk's character arc. Uh, when we first meet Kirk at the beginning of this movie, it has been several years since he's been out in space. He's got a desk job now. I mean, it's an important desk job. He's like chief of Starfleet operations. But, you know, still, he kind of hates it, and he wants some adventure back in his life. But it turns out that maybe he's lost his mojo, and uh, we might even be able to call this movie Star Trek colon How Kirk Got His Groove Back. It seems to be kind of what's going on here. So I guess really what I want to do to kick us off here, Valerie, is just to talk about Kirk's leadership style, maybe the trajectory of that through the story, because he's kind of a jerk at the beginning. Yeah, I mean, and I would actually go so far as to argue that, like, Kirk does not save the day, um, that Kirk actually has very little to do with saving the day, to be honest. It's it's mostly Decker and Spock <laughs> um, seem to really be the people that save the day, and Kirk is just there being confused, um, <laughs> you know, and, and befuddled. And I will say that, like, I think... As with almost everything in this film, because there's very little dialogue, there's very little uh, character development, right? There's very little other than like the basic exposition of plot as it happens and then extended visual and musical scenes, Um, you know, that it – there could have been a lot of richness in in diving more fully into Kirk's character arc and his kind of yearning for, um, you know, these adventures of his past and – and of his youth. And he is kind of a jerk. I will say that one thing 
that the film does well, though, again, it's not really developed, it's, it's more shown than told, is that Kirk does step back, right? Kirk is not the hero of this movie. There, there does seem to be a recognition on Kirk's part that he needs to calm down and, like, let other people help him out or use their expertise or recognize that he can't just step right back into that role. This is a different ship. This is a different moment in time. This is a different problem. And that other perspectives are valuable. And there are multiple times where he gets pretty hot headed. He gets a talking to and he goes, okay, yeah, you're right. And he steps back, which is pretty cool. That's not the Kirk from TOS. Well, it's also just strange storytelling decision, right? This is just not how, I mean, maybe literature works this way, but this is certainly not how movies work, right? We we want our hero, we want our protagonist to be our hero, and we want our hero to do the thing, to take the action that saves things at the end of the end of the story, at the end of the movie. But you're right. In this movie, Kirk's arc is he realizes that he's being a jerk and that by being a jerk, he's actually getting in people's way and that the heroic thing that Kirk does is stand back and let someone else be the hero. That's just not that's not the hero's journey that we expect, right? Like that's not Luke Skywalker's journey, right? Like that would be weird. And and it is a little bit weird. And I think that might be, I, th- I think, you know, that's just one of many ways in which this film really breaks all the rules of movies, which is, I think, why it has such a mixed reputation among the, the fandom and that it doesn't follow the formulas. It does feel a lot more like an episode of the TV show in this way and that it's, it's not following a traditional sort of hero's quest type of story that we expect from a science fiction film. But there is, I think, something really praised worthy about telling that story about a, a, a manager who actually has to be told by his counselor, you know, Bones here, who says, Jim, you're pushing. Your people know their jobs, right? That he like needs to hear that and that the heroic, awesome thing he does, the lesson he learns is, yeah, actually I should step back and let these professionals do their thing. It's maybe not very flashy or very exciting, but it seems like actually a pretty good message for people to have. Yeah, you know, and I'm I'm thinking too of of something we see in movies a lot, and especially um, nowadays of like, you know, the character of Decker, the the captain of the ship before Kirk takes over, who we haven't really spoken about yet, but um, who drives a lot of this, right? He's he's kind of he kind of fills that role of like number one, um, who pushes back, and that character so easily becomes like a one note arrogant jerk right like that it's just like two two people power grabbing at each other um but something that trek does really well often in navigating the like captain and commander um first officer roles is that it allows for you know what in like in couples therapy we would call accepting influence (laughs) right like the the best the the hallmark of like couples who are really good at being couples is that even in conflict, they can accept influence from one another um, and take accountability uh, and be like, right, okay, that was a good point. And, you know, again, not a lot of character development in the movie, but you really do get this sense that like Decker is not just arrogant. He he just is passionate and willing to stand up for and advocate what he believes is right. And the fact that he has a lot of knowledge and is competent and could be useful. And he does so in a way that at many points is deferential to what Kirk is going through. But, you know, 
we we rarely see examples of people who are in the lesser position of power standing up to the main authority and actually being listened to or being able to negotiate with them to find a better solution, right? To like bring both perspectives together to find the thing that is best. And Decker and Kirk actually do that pretty well in this film, even though maybe they intended to set up a more contentious relationship. Yeah, there's this great scene where Kirk is, you know, barking some orders. He wants to do X. And Decker says, whoa, whoa, is that a good idea? Maybe we should do Y instead. And Kirk gets really mad. And Decker says, as XO, as first officer, it's my duty to point out alternatives. And this is some great Shatner acting here. But like Kirk, you know, is in the middle of ramping up to fire back to escalate this argument, but actually stops himself, still makes the gesture he was going to make, but in fact does it with a smile, like a, almost a kind of like a self-mocking smile and says, you're right, keep at it, you know, and, and that's a really great moment. Because he's really exhibiting some qualities of good leadership there. Now, we're two-thirds of the way through the movie when we get to that point. In fact, I would say that that's actually a really important marker uh, between as we're getting ready to go from Act 2 to Act 3 is, is is showing Kirk at this stage of his journey. Because that is not how he was acting in Act 1, for sure. Yeah. No. Though he does listen to Bones. Like, he does. He let, you know, he lets Bones talk. He lets Decker talk. He doesn't, like, totally lash out and shut down and not allow for anything and, you know, go stomping around tyrannically the ship. Go but stomping it does... around the ship tyrannically is how that <laughs> sentence should be said. But go ahead. <laughs> but it does seem like he does kind of just want Decker around so that he can fight with someone, so that he can tell someone what to do, so that he can feel like he's the boss, but then realizes that that is, that's actually no way to lead. I mean, I mean, Kirk's, you know, I mean, maybe we should characterize how Kirk is at the beginning or, or specifically talk about some of the scenes that we're thinking of here rather than just kind of paint with, with broad strokes here, because at the beginning of the film, Kirk is just, he's really brusque and really bossy with people. And maybe Kirk is always a bit brusque and a bit brossy, but he's a uh, bossy, but he's always really been charming. Well, or at least usually, typically, frequently been charming while doing it, uh, doing it with a smile, doing it um, in this way where he what he's wanting is to be quick and really actually does know that his people know their jobs and and so on. But really, just even the first time we see him in this film, he's he's interacting with the uh, the Vulcan science officer of the Enterprise, a character named Sonak, who dies pretty quickly in the film and has to be replaced by Spock, which is great for Spock and Star Trek fans. Not so good for Sonak, I guess. But you know, he cuts him off off. He bosses him around. He's actually also going to a meeting where he thinks he's going to boss around his superior as well. And it's only going to take three minutes at the most in order to do that. Uh, he gets onto the Enterprise and there's an ensign there who wants to escort him to the bridge. And he says, I think I can find my way. But he's not jokey, charming Kirk when he says that to this ensign. He's almost angry at this ensign for thinking that Kirk doesn't know his way. It's as if Kirk really has something to prove uh, and and really, you know, like, who does he have to prove something to if not himself? But that seems to be characterizing how he's acting in the first act. Totally. But even in the first act, you get like, you get his 
his breakdown, right, of that. Like, there's also a scene where he's trying to find his way and can't and <laughs> asks someone, right? And then that person is pretty, like, brusque with him in return. Like, you know, just keep going that way or whatever, right? Um, and you see him kind of being a little bit, like, sad and confused and, like, coming to this realization even early on that that he maybe doesn't know what, what he thinks he knows. And it's, you know, I think it's always when we go back to these earlier things, these things in truck that were like the first example of that thing, it, it opens my eyes to seeing how this has really become a trope moving forward. And, you know, this is the way that the motion picture starts is like the exact way that Picard starts um, in, in Star Trek Picard that, that just came out this year where he like, you know, he's, He's been out of Starfleet, so it's a little bit different. Um, it's actually maybe more like Bones. <laughs> um, <laughs> like there's, you know, there's always this like trope of like I left Starfleet or I had a desk job and now I'm coming back, right? Which is like we get this all the time in Trek. And you see Picard um, go go to his superiors and basically ask for something, ask for a ship, ask to be reinstated, ask to be able to go and do something and get just like totally destroyed <laughs> and told absolutely not. Um, which is so different than than Shatner just like we don't even get that scene. We don't even get the scene where he asks for the thing and and he certainly gets it. Um which was an interesting decision on on Starfleet's part. It's also confusing to me that we go through this film, we go through this arc of Kirk accepting influence um yet we end the film with him like getting his commission back like the end of the film is very confusing where he just gets to be like let's let's go explore now it's like don't don't you have to go back to your desk job and like file a report <laughs> on what happened like what like you can't just right. do that <laughs> right and we we know from the beginning of star trek 2 the wrath of khan that he, he's going to go back to being an admiral with a, a desk job i think it's a different desk job at, at that point one that maybe he's better suited for actually he seems to be in charge of uh training cadets or something but uh yeah I, I, he's just taking the Enterprise for a joyride. He's like, "There's no real hurry to get back. Look, we saved, we saved Earth. <laughs> let's, uh, let's just go out for like a week, and then I'll come back. I mean, like, what's the worst that can happen to me? I'll get demoted to captain, which you know is the exact plot <laughs> of Star Trek Four or the the end of Star Trek Four. Anyway, the one with the the whales. Well, let's. Uh, I want to actually use a word here to describe Kirk that I'm surprised that you know almost half an hour into this episode I have not said so far, which is arrogant. Because this is the real characteristic of him at this point, right? The the impetus here, the plot of this movie is that there's, you know, V'ger with its like 82 AU long, uh, astronomical unit long cloud or wide cloud coming to Earth. And uh, we're all afraid and somebody has to save Earth. But because we live in a, a paradise, all of the spaceships are, you know, patrolling the neutral zones. And uh, the only ship that we've got here is the Enterprise, which isn't ready. That the ship itself, physically, like engineering wise, is just not ready to go. And the crew is, you know, I don't know, not fully staffed. And the captain is just is brand new. And the science officer is brand new. And Kirk says, I need to be on that ship because of all the people on or near Earth right now, I am the most qualified to go deal with this. And maybe not even I am the most qualified, but I am the best person. I am the person who can save the day here because I have saved the day so many times before. There's some real arrogance there that maybe isn't deserved. 
The reason I haven't called Kirk arrogant is because I didn't think I needed to because <laughs> Kirk and arrogant are like synonymous. <laughs> like, yeah, that, was, yeah. that was never not true. It just, you know, all of the other Kirk that we know, like his his positionality and his arrogance like lined up, you know, um, right. and and that is no longer the case. Like he's he's retained that that arrogance and, you know, is a little bit maybe more hot headed in it in the sense that like he's being really opportunistic um right and and sees this this as a moment where where he can get something back that he has lost but yeah i mean he's always arrogant that's the whole <laughs> that's literally the whole character but he does he gets called out right away decker's like literally when i got this assignment and you recommended me for this assignment you told me how jealous you were and told me you were going to be looking for a way to like you know get back and i think that's what you're doing right now dude and he's just like totally right he's so so right and you know maybe i i think really at the heart of this film i think this film has nothing to do with special effects or the music or viger um but really is just about like a spock kirk bones reunion um and returning to that triumvirate and you know, we even close the film with that, like, quippy, the three of them on the bridge kind of interaction. Um, <laughs> it's really a lot about their their friendship, um, right? You know, similar to the way a lot of TOS, almost all TOS episodes would close. Um, and it's the fact, like, that Decker sets up this opportunity for Bones to come in as that, like, moral reason voice. And then for Spock to come in as this logic voice. And for those relationships to develop and for us to get to see those again, right? It's just, how do we get all those characters in a room and get them the same dynamic that they had before? That is 100% the core of this of this movie. And, and actually, that's a nice segue into the other theme or, or one of the other two themes that I really want us to talk about, which is love and, and friendship. Because and, and, and you've pointed out, you've really nailed where those things intersect. Because I actually, I, I wonder, and I'll just pose this to you, Valerie, as a question. Do you think that Kirk would have learned the lesson and backed off and actually let Decker and these other professionals do their job to, uh, in order to actually save the day. Do you think Kirk would have been able to do that if Bones hadn't been there? You know, my instinct is that I want to say absolutely not, but I will. I will give Kirk a little bit of credit. I think that he probably would have at some point accepted the circumstances and accepted the influence from the other people on the crew. However, I think. It would have taken much longer and he would have given much less ground up and the consequences of that extended length um, and end of giving less up, you know, having his heels in for longer would have been greater. I think, you know, more people would have died um, and and think more things would have gone wrong. I, I think I'm with you there that Kirk maybe eventually would have come around, but in this case, it might have been too late if Bones hadn't been there. And I have to say, the, the scene when when Bones beams up, when Kirk makes Bones <laughs> beam up onto the Enterprise, and he's got that sweet, sweet beard that I, uh, I'm i so envious of and that I love so much. And DeForest Kelly is just being ornery, just ornery, and uh, I, I love it. And Kirk says, I need you, Bones. I need you, right? Of course, he delivers it way better than I do. He shatters it in ways that I'm just not capable of doing. But that's a powerful moment. because And what he means, he does not mean that he needs Bones to come here and be the doctor on the ship. He needs Bones because Bones is the counselor 
on this ship, or at least is his counselor, and he needs that. And it turns out he does need it, right? That without Bones here, like Bones is indispensable, I think, to the success of this of this mission, and that their love, their friendship is, you know, at least a huge, if not, is a huge component of how this mission succeeds. Yeah, I mean, I think the friendship between these three characters is also kind of the glue of the the original show, um, though I... You know, there's a lot of really fun sci-fi space exploration, alien window dressing um, in in TOS that um, we don't get in this film at all. <laughs> like, like literally at all. Everything is so beige for so long. Yes. <laughs> um, but um, but you know, I I really don't want to and and will not reduce. Uh, you know, the friendship between Kirk, Spock and Bones um, to to something so akin to romantic love. I think we really need to leave space for like the friendship love that is between them and and like kind of how cool it is to show three men kind of so in love with each other um, <laughs> as, as friends on a friend level, um, you know, bringing their their various uh, skills to play and, and learning from one another. I think that can really stand on its own. I also think if you are inclined to do so that, and you know, if you are in, inclined towards uh, slash fiction and shipping <laughs> that like this film is basically like two hours and 10 minutes of homoerotic subtext, like the amount of times that these men tell one another passionately that they need each other um, and like hold hands and stare longingly into each other's eyes is, it's really striking. Um, and you know, if you want to look at it that way, that's like a fun way to look at it. It creates some good laughs. There are some dialogue in here that is really intensely homoerotic. Um, and, and I love it very much for that. But at the same time, I, I want to be able to have it, have it hold as an example of friendship without it having to be read as homoerotic and just be like, no, men can form friendships this way that are also platonic. Yes, and I, I do think it is actually really great that we get a lot of body language and a, a lot of a lot of touching that demonstrates that as as well. That it's not just this sort of aloofness, like physical aloofness of giving each other space. There's there is a lot of 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 you know handshaking and 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 clasping and so on that happens in this film that I think is actually really quite great to see. The the first instance of it actually is uh, just prior to the first installment of the Jerry Goldsmith music video when when Scotty is is flying the shuttle, flying Kirk up in the shuttle, and uh, Kirk announces, uh, you know, reveals, I guess, to Scotty that he's going to take command of the Enterprise. And Scotty, you know, looks deeply into Kirk's eyes and grasps his arm. Uh, Kirk also does a Scottish accent for, for some reason in that scene. I but it's a really that. lovely That's scene. such a good part. Oh, I loved it so much. And neither of them are very good at Scottish accents, but it was a great scene. <laughs> no, it is. It absolutely is a great scene. And I do love when Bones gets on board too, right? The getting the band back together stuff is all really amazing here. And I think, you know, Spock is, he has dialed Spock up to 11 in 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 this movie, we'll, we'll talk a little bit about his uh, his uh, internal journey in a, a little bit. But here, kind of under this subject heading of love and friendship, Spock could not have a more opposite uh, reaction to getting on the Enterprise than Bones. I mean, if he was trying, right? He 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 won't even acknowledge other people like Uhura and and Chekhov and Sulu when he's on the bridge, like just doesn't even acknowledge that they're talking to him. He is so shut down from his emotional side here. And he and Bones are just total opposites. I would have liked to have seen Bones move a little bit. You know, I, I think he's, he's maybe 
of the three of them, a character that doesn't have a lot of movement um, in, in, you know, how he's accepting influence from one another. I really wish that in that scene at the end where, where Spock kind of expresses his love and appreciation also for Bones, that we had gotten something back from Bones there too. Um, and I know that, you know, Spock is often a vehicle for just like making jokes uh, about mm-hmm you know, how dehumanizing it is not to have emotion. And I, I find that as always just like sad and frustrating because I think Spock is so precious. Um, but, it, you know, Spock's character changes a lot. Kirk's character changes a lot. But Bones doesn't really. He's still just like a, a stubborn jerk who's right a lot. Well, to be fair, though, to Bones, Bones' reaction to Spock is is really heartfelt, right? I mean, he announces that he's really excited to see Spock. He's so glad he's there. And Spock does meet him with an icy, icy stare. And in fact, then insults uh, insults Bones. He says, you know, your predilection for insignificance or something like that, you know, is, uh, is still on full display uh, since the last time I saw you. So I think that you know, Spock's turnaround at the end is meant to be uh, a beat in that arc, but the beats might just come too far apart to really feel uh, to feel like that. That might be some some bad uh, bad storytelling there in terms of how you're spreading out the beats on that on that emotional moment, that emotional arc. But I think that that's where that's supposed to to fit in. To be fair to Bones, that that is fair. I think maybe I just wanted a little bit. L- longer of a shot on bones in that in that final like scene where spock is in sick bay and and clasping kirk's hand and bones is also there you know um i would have liked a little bit more from that scene but you're totally right um spock walking onto the ship is like heartbreaking he just like destroys the hearts of everybody on that bridge and i think mccoy says something like you're just as warm and sociable as ever um and and as you said the line is like you you know you haven't changed either uh, as your continued predilection for irrelevancy demonstrates which is like <laughs> a sick yeah. <laughs> burn like it's so good but there's also this moment where uhura runs up and is and is basically like we we missed you we love you like we we all feel this way please accept our love and and he just does not and it's heartbreaking Right, but he doesn't even actively reject it. He just ignores it, which is worse, right? It's just, oh, it's, so it's much worse. really, really painful. It was harsh. I don't think I've ever quite noticed before how harsh that is. But what a really interesting, what a compelling arc for Spock to to have. I I, I think I'm with you in that I, I wish maybe it had, it had all of this had been, been sewn up with a little more of a button on it at the end. I think maybe that is one of the flaws of this film as a story is that the third act doesn't really follow on to the first two acts quite so well. And I, I suspect that that's a feature of the the process of the the writing where, you know, the V'ger business actually is, is almost kind of a self-contained story. That's the outline of an actual TOS episode. And all of that really takes place in the third act. And so that story then dominates at the end and ignores or doesn't maybe do the best job of weaving in all of this other stuff, the f- love and friendship and the the leadership and Kirk's, you know, ennui and arrogance. Uh, none of those things to get, I think, dealt with quite to my satisfaction because we shift focus so much to the, you know, the fact that there's machine life here. It also seems like they spent an inordinate amount of time building the set for the final scene um, where uh, they're at V'ger finally. And they're in that kind of like uh, weird gray landscape. It kind of looks like they 
they took the they took like Han Solo stuck in carbonite like <laughs> boxes kind of and like glued them all around in different sizes. <laughs> it just looks like it took that set forever to be built. There must have been so much work in it. And of course, uh, Persis Kambata, who plays Ilya, has to traverse that entire set in like ridiculous heels um, because, you know, that's what space probes do. They wear ridiculous heels. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the good news is she's actually a robot there. So I don't know. It's easier for her somehow. But I love that set at the end. I think it's absolutely just breathtaking. It's really awesome. I mean, it's like it's like kind of like approaching Stonehenge, but it turns out that it's like it's, you know, space probe henge. It's probe henge. Maybe we'll call it that. I think I think it's you know it's lit beautifully. Probe I think the henge. colors. Yeah, 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 I heard it too. I'm taking it back. <laughs> so good. No, keep it. <laughs> well, we should we should actually talk about Ilya. I think here under the the heading of of love and friendship because she's here to be the love interest of of Decker, and well, Decker's here to be the love interest of Ilya, to be fair as well. But their their story, their love story, is a big part, certainly of of the second act and getting into then the the third act uh, of the story as well. And it is what motivates Decker's self-sacrifice at the end, which is actually maybe not really a sacrifice because he believes that his consciousness is going to exist in V'ger along with Ilea's. And that's really what he uh, what he wants most in life here. But I, I wonder, Valerie, how you felt about the, the love story between Ilea and Decker here, or the almost love story. It has strong, like, Riker-Troy vibes. Um, it almost feels as if their relationship is the blueprint in some ways for the relationship between yeah, Riker and yeah. Troy that we it, get it in 100% TNG. is. Yeah. And it, it, you know, we get a lot of things for TNG, including the theme song um, from this movie, <laughs> um, which is which is just really great and, you know, fun to watch it backwards and be like, oh, this, this music means even more to me because of that. Um I really think it's like everything else in this film. I, I know I'm just repeating myself where these stories could have been really rich, but the character development and and the time devoted to the stories just was not properly there. I actually think act three is when I feel the most compelled by their relationship, right? It's where they give it a little bit more time. And really, it's the glances. Like in that last 15 minutes of the film, when they're at Probe Henge and they you know, just she is looking at him with just this like tears in her eyes, like with extreme longing. And he is so overwhelmed with compassion and and longing and and, you know, sac willing to sacrifice so much in order to fulfill that longing. I'm like, oh, there's the emotion. Like, there's the thing underneath. Um, you know, there's the time they hung out at that waterfall and, and Decker never called back. Um <laughs> So that's really the moment where I'm actually in, invited, I think, into the relationship in a different way. Though I will say that, like, I am very tired of this being a thing in Trek and in stories in general where, like, you know, I think in the beginning, she's like, well, you never called me ever. You just disappeared. Um, and he was like, but would you have, you know, come to say goodbye? Like, could you have handled it if I did? It's like, it the it. it just don't disappear on people who you're madly in love with. Don't do that. That's bad. Like have the hard conversation. Like this isn't, I, I think there's this, like these brutish abandonments stories that then become like the catalyst for love and lust and mystery and intrigue. And like, no, just show up and have the hard conversation. Like I want that love story. Yeah, people need to stop reading so much 19th century poetry and just be happy functioning adults. 
You know, yeah. It's, yeah, yeah. Brood hunk is not it's not really a good life choice, even though we do like to watch it on 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 our stories. We like to watch it on TV and in our in our movies for sure. But yeah, I want to I want to go back to uh, something that you said about the glances at the end uh, between Ilea and Decker, because, of course, that's Ilea bot, really, who's doing that, not actually the. Carbon-based unit. Carbon-based unit of Ilea. And so it's a robot there. But one of the things that happens in this movie that I think is really cool is that, you know, it is a robot, it's a machine, a mechanism, as Bones keeps keeps referring to it, that has her memories, that has something of her consciousness imprinted on it. That, you know, somehow V'ger has been able to do, you know, a, a whole, you know, sort of neurosystem scan here and get her personality, or at least her memories in there somehow. And in fact, that not her personality, or at least not to express it, not to be able to access that, right? But Decker's, Decker is able to get to uh, get beneath all of the the computer programming, the robot programming of Ilea Bot to reach the actual Ilea who is buried in there, whose memories are in the you know hard drive uh, that that's here in the in the robot, and he's able to do that because they have this love for each other. He's able to to get to her, and Ilea Bot starts to become an actual person, an individual person here at the end of the film. You know, as you're saying this, I, a different perspective comes to mind, which is that, and they do they do a lot of building, right? Of like, oh, she's in there somewhere. If only we could draw her out with this headband. Um, but like, I actually wonder if the glances that Ilea is sending to Decker at, at in in Act Three here aren't Ilea aren't that she, you know, has been, she's found a little bit of her emotion in, in that hard drive, though that would actually be a nice tie into like the themes with Spock and Bones. But um, I actually wonder if that's V'ger, right? They they do refer to V'ger as a child, right? There's this, this like childlike, wounded, meaningful need to find their parent and, and to be, to get answers and to know where they came from and to be reunited. And there is some really intense, like kind of helpless childlike need in the glances that she sends his way. And I could see that coming from, from V'ger in a way, like, I guess maybe I'm missing the part where it's a machine and it can't do that. But I think, it's a way to read the scene that actually it's not Ilea. It's like, please, please, please give me the answers. I'm desperate for the answers. I've been mechanically asking asking everybody this entire film to like tell me where I come from and who I am and show me love and give me purpose and meaning in life. Um, please do it. I showed you Propenge. Please do it. <laughs> well, I think that is definitely something that Ilea, the actual carbon-based unit, Ilea and Vidra have in common is that they're both heartbroken. That they're they're both emotionally vulnerable. They're both maybe emotionally shattered and are are looking for for something. And, may, and in fact, looking for a specific person, uh, Decker in one case, and then the creator in in the other. And that that's where their their stories are sort of 
parallel there. And of course, it ends up being the case that merging with Decker to make a new life form is the solution to to both of their their problems, I guess, at the end, which is not really a way that I thought uh, of this film before. It's not a, not a way I thought I, uh, it's not a way I expected to ever think about this film either. But uh, that's actually an interesting idea. I'm loving our discussion, but then I keep getting these like flashes a little bit like back to the actual substance of the film that's like, how could a probe that has moved through the entire universe not understand that most life, like it's gathered, its entire point is to gather data on the universe. How could it not right. have understood by now that most life is not a machine? Also, like, how do they know all the things they know? It's like they just show up at the center of probe hinge and are like, you know, oh, this is exactly what happened. Now I understand everything because I'm standing here and my guesses about you know, they just state their guesses as facts about what's happening um, and and what's going on with V'ger and what the solution is and and all that stuff. Like even Spock saying, oh, it like it busted its own power lines. It's like, how do you know that? Like, are you tapped into its consciousness? Um, no, Decker is not you. Um, <laughs> right. I mean, this is the the hand waving that we have to do of, of so much on screen science fiction and, and well, speculative fiction, maybe more generally of just, yes, any, if people take a guess, that guess is going to have to turn out to be 100% right. But this is definitely something that that fans lay as a criticism on this film is that, and I'm not sure these are quite plot holes, but they are things that don't make a whole lot of sense. They're inconsistencies for sure. This is the second time where we have reversed roles and you are telling me that it's just hand-waving and to accept <laughs> it. And it's it's strange. I'm getting used to it. But, you know, I, I think I, I always love our discussions because we... I come out of them with a different perspective and I always am seeking really a more positive perspective, a more meaningful perspective when we talk. Um, but it always does coexist like, wait, this movie is weird. Like, and like, maybe not that great, but like, what's happening? Yeah, but I do actually really enjoy this movie. It's it's not, you know, in my top three of Trek films, but it's not in my bottom three either, or even my bottom five. I think it is for a lot of Trek fans. Although I think actually probably, I mean, it's a polarizing film. I think we, we know that in the, the fandom. And uh, we've kind of wandered into the last thing I want to talk about here, which is, I'm just calling it here on my outline here, machine life, though. I think there's, I sort of mean more than 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 that. But, you know, we've talked about Ilea and, and also V'ger and, you know, the question of like, hey, how, yeah, how do you not know that? Most life forms, most life and the and the, the whole universe, certainly in this galaxy, is you know carbon. It's organic. It's not not machines. Uh, you know, we'll 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 sweep that aside for for now. But this is actually part of the machine life here. V'ger and and the Iliabot and so on is is part of I think what is a, a broader theme of contrasting logic and emotion here. And and showing us those as maybe two extremes on a spectrum. And of course, the resolution of the plot, right, is that we need to blend them together by getting Decker to merge with the machine. But hey, also, this is kind of what happens for Kirk, too, now that he's got Bones and Spock back in his life. So one of the things that really jumped out to me on this watch that, that hasn't so much in previous watches is that actually Spock and V'ger do have a connection that you know Spock is in the middle of 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 going through the Kolinar. In fact, actually, he's not in the middle. He's at the end. He's about to get the cool necklace that lets him be, you know, a Vulcan <laughs> monk. And he suddenly has to stop and say, I can't because I hear Jerry Goldsmith calling to me with his heavy bass line. <laughs> oh my know? God, you're so obsessed with Jerry Goldsmith. <laughs> I am. I am. It's so true. <laughs> but he he has actually some kind of connection with V'ger. I don't understand what that connection is, though, really. Do you? 
I absolutely do not understand <laughs> what that connection is. And, um, and you know, they never really tell us and it would be cool to know more about it. But I assume, I don't know. I mean, we just have to make assumptions with the basic stuff, right? Because the stuff with Spock is always... Spock is too logical. Spock needs to be more emotional and more in tune with his human side. And all the humans want him to do that, but all the Vulcans want him to be more logical. And he has this, you know, I say it kind of with an eye roll because we see it so much, but I think he really represents um, what it is like to have a hyphenated identity and to exist between two cultures, right? Um, and and how difficult that can be and how like you're never really fully accepted in either culture and you always exist in this this space in between. Um, and it, it's one of the most compelling things about, about him as a character and such a cool thing um, to have on TV and on, on the, the big screen at this time. But it's all really just a mechanism for, I think, Spock to, to step away from going 100% into logic and to continue to seek the balance, right? To continue to seek to be what he is, which is half Vulcan and half human, and to try to operate in that space in between. And Viger is just a nice big metaphor for that, right? Viger is this super logical being um, on a kind of destructive path. And I think maybe we're supposed to think that like the Kolinar is a destructive path for Spock and, and his potential and what he could be and and the relationships he could have in the world. And so he is connected to it in this like cosmic way that brings him back to his friendships and that balance and helps Viger become, you know, Spock, part logic, part emotion. And Viger finds that balance, right, that Spock Spock is hoping to find. Yeah, I think you you put it awesomely that they're actually the kind of metaphors for each other. But because yeah, Spock is he's trying to become Viger. Viger is everything that that Spock uh, aspires to be, though also so is Data, it turns out, as we learned in Unification, which we uh, did not that long ago. But yeah, V'ger is everything that Spock aspires to be. And in fact, there's really, there's actually this underdeveloped conflict uh, that we get uh, in the first act of the movie when, when when Spock arrives on the Enterprise and explains what he's here for. And then uh, Bones and Kirk are talking about Spock after he leaves the room that that they're concerned that Spock identifies with V'ger so much that he may actually choose V'ger over his human comrades if it comes to it. And that seemed like that's supposed to be actually setting up a moment of choice for Spock, where he is actually going to have to make a choice like that at the end, a sort of internal conflict. Uh, that doesn't ever actually come to any fruition. And I wonder, you know, which draft that part is from, you know, that, that didn't make it into the, uh, the end of the film. But it's a really interesting idea for Spock, because we've never seen Spock before, even as we have seen him want to be logical and to make fun of people for having emotions. We've never seen him want to really be a machine before and that seems like that's a step further than we've seen him uh, seen him desire to be before i th- it makes sense to me you know like if you if you try to step a little bit into the like the real tension um and and struggle and you know maybe even like trauma of spock's life in this hyphenated identity you could see how always feeling like you're never enough for either part of you or for either of the cultures that that you find yourself sitting in between, um, which I think is unfair, right? Because I think there's like um, there's the culture of being part one and part another that's like a thing separate rather than just something that exists 
between a, a binary of those options, but that, you know, you've been on this ship for five years and then you've been doing whatever you've been doing since then. And you're constantly being made fun of for being too logical. You go home and everybody is making fun of you for being too emotional. And of course you would want to like throw yourself at that extreme, right? Be like, kind of like, screw you. I'll go all the way then. Like, this is what you want from me. I'm going to be a machine. I'm going to do the colonar. I'm never going to have any emotion again, ever. Um, And, are you happy now? Right? I could see the pain pushing you to the edge of one of those binaries. That's a really awesome insight in into Spock's journey. I, I tend not to sympathize with Spock as uh, as an object of of mockery and ridicule, even though he is clearly that for Bones. I, I tend not to think about Spock in those terms. And and but I think your perspective on this is absolutely what the, the writers are are going for and the the angle that they're looking at at Spock in here. And certainly we've seen that in Discovery. I mean we get a little bit of that in the animated series as well of wanting to to see Spock as this person who has suffered because of his identity here. And that these choices between logic and emotion aren't just about like a matter of religion or philosophy, uh, and not even maybe just a matter of identity, but are seeking refuge from something. He's he's looking for safety. Yeah, I think of him as a as a character who is really in pain a lot of the time, but also super strong um, and you know um, and confident, and has lots of other other lovely things going on for him. But this is why I'm so into the stuff about Vulcans that we get in Enterprise, because I think it makes so much sense that um, that Vulcans are these very, very emotional people. And and the logic is a reaction to trying to fight those impulses, um, which, you know, if you can think about maybe what the the human suffering would be for a character in that position, Spock's suffering probably has more depth because of the depth of emotion that, that a Vulcan um, feels by comparison. So, but you know, I'm a Spock apologist. He's, he's my favorite. (laughs) Uh, Kirk's Spock bones. It's always Spock. I know you're Kirk and you know, we've we're (laughs) well-rounded because your wife chooses bones. So, um, you know, that's the perspective you're going to get from me. And as, as always, and as you spent um, some time doing today, even you're, you always try to make me come around to Kirk a little bit. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I always try. Yeah. Someday we're actually going to have to do a rank the captains uh, episode. (laughs) And uh, yeah, I, I, you know, I don't think there's any chance that Kirk is going to be on the top of your your list that day. But, you know, uh, we don't need to make any bets yet, but that'll be a fun thing to do. Uh, and I do also, before we move on to, to the last question that I've got here, I do also just want to comment that, yes, I really, really hope that we get to do this movie again someday. I mean, it'll be like at least two years from now, probably more than that, if we get to do it at all, uh, because I want to spend some time on that scene with Spock on Vulcan, uh, you know, where we're getting Vulcan spoken and all the subtitles, because yeah, love Vulcan religion, love Vulcan mysticism. Oh my gosh, Glenn, I learned something about that scene where we get to hear Vulcan that I did not know. And it is blowing my mind. It's one of the most delightful facts um, I have learned all year. And I I wonder if you know anything about, um, about how the Vulcan was constructed in that scene. No, I don't. And please tell me, I'm, I'm excited to, I'm excited to hear this. So they filmed the scene in English. So with the exact words that you see in the English subtitles that come up on screen. 
and then had aspiring amateur linguist James Doohan watch the scene muted and come up with sounds that matched the lip movements of the actual English and then dub it over. That's crazy. That's crazy. Crazy. I read that because I was like, I went, I watched the scene and I went looking for some information about the Vulcan language because I thought it was so cool. And I came across this fact. Then I read all this stuff about it and went back and I must have watched this scene like 10 times. I watched it a couple times on mute. And I was like, oh, my God, they are just saying the same words in English. What? Um, It's ridiculous. It is ridiculously it's such a fact. I'm like blown away by this fact. I also think like the the shining gem of of um Duen's job in this was like making Spock Spock. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, though she she doesn't actually pronounce it the exact same way uh any of the times that she says it. She says she says his <laughs> name three times and it's slightly different each time. Elizabeth and I uh, we had to pause and uh, and discuss that. But somehow did not notice this uh did not notice this basically just like lip syncing that's happening here. That's really cool. I mean, we're going to go watch it like immediately. I'm going to run upstairs as soon as we're done recording and like make Elizabeth watch this with this new information. Uh, that I've got, but uh, yeah, we'll we'll really dissect this scene someday when we do this movie with our our normal format. But I do have one more question here on the theme of machine life before we wrap up today, because you know the ultimate resolution of this film is that you know Viger gets what it wants and then decides to leave the earth alone. It's also the exact plot of Star Trek four, except that, you know, it doesn't need whales right now. What it needs is uh, not emotions actually, but imagination, which is interesting because we, we have been thinking about the, the binary here or the spectrum here as being emotion and logic, but really at the end, it's, it's what V'ger needs is an imagination so that it can imagine that there might be things that it doesn't know so that it continue to have a sense of purpose, so that it can create its own sense of purpose, in fact. Uh, and in fact, the line is, out of our human weaknesses. And I found that really interesting because I'm I'm not sure that logic can't do that. I don't think that it's illogical to surmise about uh, parallel universes and alternate realities and so on, which are the things that are invoked here. In fact, I think that math and logic actually demonstrate that those things might be likely to be true in ways that are actually hard for us to grapple with ourselves, right? But the, the actual logic suggests that in fact, maybe reality is different than our senses uh, show it to us. Uh, that like our imaginations actually might be more limited than than logic in this in this case. Um, but you know, I don't know anything about logic or math or or, or physics. So I, I don't know. I just wondered what you what you thought about that. Yeah, I mean, I think it were you're like asking us to consider a, a different like to imagine a different definition of imagination, right? One that goes beyond our construct of imagination being an emotional um, kind of whimsy and um, and fantasy. And to say that, like, you know, you can imagine, like, conjure up future images of different things um, with logic as well, and that that is also really valuable. So to reduce imagination to this emotional quality is to miss something. And I think this is something that you know, it goes without saying that I love and am obsessed with Star Trek. But one thing that I don't love about it is is the 
the way that it always places humanity and human knowledge and current um, day human conceptualizations of things. And by that, I often mean, you know, Western um, conceptualizations of things. Um, Really, you know, we're not representing the full spectrum of humanity um, with this American uh, show. Um, But I I think that there's a there's not a lot of willingness often to integrate or accept other perspectives of of ways of conceiving the world or frameworks of the world. And so ultimately, I think it's not about V'ger needing emotion or needing imagination to survive, but maybe more about like V'ger having reached the limits of its worldview and its framework and lens for looking at the world and the universe and needing to integrate knowledge of other worldviews and frameworks in order to carry on in its curiosity and learning and growth. And to reduce that to the word imagination, I think probably, as you're suggesting, is a little bit of a misstep. You've done a really awesome job of articulating exactly, well, well one, exactly what the the problems that I had with this where you did a much better job of that than than I did. But I also really love your solution to it here, the way that you're you're interpreting the use of the word imagination here. That, that's a that's an awesome awesome reading of this. You know, the the resolution of the of the plot here, and you know, I do just want to reiterate the the parallels that we get here that that you know that. That V'ger is now this, you know, mixture of two extremes, and also, you know, that's who Kirk is, right? That we've got Bones and Spock, and that that those are the parallels that we get here. And so, I guess the moral lesson at the end is that we all need balance in our life, and and maybe that's, you know, I mean, ultimately, we know from Spock's later story that's going to be Spock's story as well. As you were saying that, it made me realize too. Like, I wonder if V'ger is just a metaphor for like different parts of all of all three of these characters, though, again, I think Bones gets a little bit left out. Maybe (laughs) I just mean all two of these characters, Kirk and Spock, but like, you know, V'ger is lashing out in, in its, its arrogance and need for understanding and control and then backs off, which is, you know, the Kirk arc. So I don't know, maybe everything's just a metaphor for everything. Yeah. It's just metaphors all the way down. Metaphors for metaphors for metaphors. Well, those were all of the things that I had on my list to talk about today. The three themes, uh, Kirk's leadership, love and friendship, and then uh, machine life or, you know, um, emotion and, and logic or imagination and and logic here. And uh, still somehow we managed to jabber at each other for a little over an hour about that. So uh, I think your, uh, your question earlier, Valerie, about how long will the episode be if we ever actually do this in our usual format as a scene by scene, uh, we will take bets now and, uh, and see, see how that <laughs> See how that turns out. But uh, I think we have uh, fulfilled the brief here today. So that is going to do it for this episode. I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Valerie Hoagland. And we would love to hear what you think we got wrong, what you think we <laughs> left out, um, what you think of Spock's sweatsuit when he's in sick bay, because mm. I am itching to talk about that and Glenn wouldn't <laughs> let me. And if you want to do any of those things, come on over to our forum at claytemplemedia.com. Or come over to our Clay Temple Media subreddit to talk with us more about it. 
Yeah, I would love to hear what people think about this this movie. I really enjoy this movie, and I, I don't really ever get tired of of talking about it. And I, you know, I also don't ever get tired of listening to the score, the brilliant score. I got to say, Jerry Goldsmith, one more time before we oh close out. Oh my gosh! Let it go, problem. man. <laughs> well, before we go, I will say too that uh, if you would like to commission an episode of your own, we would we would love to do that. And you can get in touch with us anywhere you find us on the internet. You know, our website, Twitter, uh, Reddit, Patreon. We would love to hear what you would like us to do. Um, next time we'll be back with something I never quite know where we're going to drop these commissioned episodes but uh, hopefully in the previous episode I said what was coming next and if not you can always find out by visiting the website at claytemplemedia.com you can also get to my whimsy directly by sliding into my DMs on Instagram I'm at plants in Star Trek Um, and until next time stay spacey